Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Minneapolis. With me is Greg Velasquez in Des Moines. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. The domestic league is back, has been back for a while now with a group stage knockout round style tournament that you've all been following to some extent. We're not going to say anything comprehensive about the MLS's back tournament, but we were able to scout a few players in it and want to talk about them. We also know more about the World Cup qualifying format in CONCACAF than we did a week ago. Greg, why don't you start with that since you're kind of the um, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying format expert? (laughs) I earned that title. So uh, new format announced. Uh, Hexagonal is out. The Ocho is in. Um, and uh, obviously the the context of why we have to change the World Cup format is not a happy situation. Uh, but from a soccer sporting standpoint, in my opinion, um, the changes to the format are extremely beneficial to the United States men's national team. Why beneficial? I don't get that. So we know the old format. Uh, we we knew, we definitely know like the uh, how it runs. The hexagonal six teams play each team home and away for ten games. Uh, the timing of the hex for this 2022 cycle was a big deal. It was different than past cycles, and it really, in my opinion, was working against us uh, in a lot of ways. So the hex was originally scheduled to run from September 2020 to June 2021, uh, which means it would have actually wrapped up a full 18 months before uh, the World Cup in 2022, yeah, in November. Yeah, which is like a century in soccer time. Yeah, and, and even before like you go to the November uh, World Cup event, like in, in, in all previous cycles, the Hex would wrap up in November the year before the World Cup would take place in the summer, so it was still only eight months away. So even if it were a normal summer World Cup, uh, you'd still be talking about a full year in it ahead of the event that we would have been going through these qualifiers. Um, now, why format. would that have been a disadvantage for the U.S.? Disadvantage for the U.S. because we are in uh, essentially a complete transition from our prior cycles pool. So we have to find, identify and integrate uh, a ton of new players, combine that with the fact that we're dealing with this missing generation uh, of prime age players, which means that a lot of our eggs are in the baskets of 18 to 21 year olds currently. uh, And we need a lot of them to hit. And this gives a, you know, prior to this adjustment, we didn't have that happen. Uh, Yeah. There was no, there was no opportunity for it to happen. Yeah. And with COVID ruling out the Olympics uh, and, and some of the other windows, we were going to go into the October window, uh, a world world cup qualifying window, like with a lot of question marks. Mm. Yeah. I'll also throw in the old our old saw about uh, 2019 kind of, in my opinion, being a wasted year uh, preparation wise in that, you know, a lot of the things that we tried to incorporate in 2019 seem to have fallen by the wayside in that last Canada game. And then in the which was a successful outcome and in the Costa Rica friendly. So we would also be going into this sort of uh, urgent World Cup qualifying mode with. A brand new system. We don't know how players are going to fit into it. Uh, there just would have been a lot of uh, uncertainty about how we would play in some really important uh, World Cup qualifying games. It does seem like a, a a bit of an unsettled question. Like, how much did Greg Berhalter shift course towards the end of the year? 
on the evidence of what we see, it looks like he did kind of abandon a lot of what he was trying to do in 2019. He has never admitted that or, or even hinted at an admittance of that. But perhaps he will find it in his heart at some point. <laughs> and, and maybe, we're, again, maybe I'm totally wrong about how I'm projecting us to play. And we'll see a lot of the same frameworks and staples from 2019 uh, going into these next windows. Right, right, right. I'm just thinking about all the data we'll be able to work through. Data, I should say. 14. <laughs> I think you can say either. Can you? Consult your dictionary. 14 qualifying matches, uh, which are the definition of meaningful soccer games. To watch a Gold Cup, Nations League semis and final, hopefully Olympic qualifying and hopefully the Olympics. So there's just going to be a lot to, to watch and talk about. Maybe we'll just have to become a daily podcast. <laughs> there, there are going to be spells next summer where that's probably going to be the case. Uh, the Ocho itself, I think, has the has the potential to be just an extremely exciting competitive format. Uh, I think there are better teams in CONCACAF now than there were four years ago. Mm. Uh, I think the levels are risen. I think the U.S. maybe has dropped potentially, uh, or at least on the evidence of of 2019. That could all that could all swing back uh, the other way with a new setup and some new players. Uh, but but the level of competition and the drama that I think we're going to see is going to be pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thought that we have, the unspoken thought that we have and that a lot of people have is you get the holy trinity of McKenney, Pulisic, and Adams on the field at the same time, throw in the apostle Giovanni and a few others, and it's a different kind of, you know, it's a different kind of situation than it was last year. There's a Serginho Dest, I believe, that that is making some waves. Yes, yeah. There's a, there's there's many. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities out there. A lot so, of wave makers. Yeah. So let's let's get to the MLS's back tournament, which is you know not nearly as exciting as World Cup qualifying, but it's happening right now. Uh, what's your overall take on it, Greg? <laughs> My overall take on the MLS back is back tournament is that uh, Bob Bradley would have been and still would be. Uh, a hell of a hire for the U.S. men's national team. Hmm. I'm. A, I mean, they do play. They do. They do play fun soccer, but they they haven't. I'm always ready for them to crash out of a tournament, and um, all they've done so far in this tournament is make the quarterfinals, and they face Oscar Pereja tonight, and he's got Orlando clicking. I would not be surprised if they lose tonight. Los Angeles, you're calling. You're calling out against the host team tonight. Mm. All right, I'm not, we're not. I, I don't make predictions anymore. I'm out of that we're, game. We're leaving that on the pod. <laughs> Just on the pod. You're not. You're not striking that from the record before you release this in the morning. No, it's going out. I. I, right. I just said I wouldn't be surprised if they lose. Does everybody hear that? I would not be surprised <laughs> if they lose. Basically, what I'm saying is nothing. I'm saying actually nothing. <laughs> There's in a 90-minute one-off soccer game. There's a chance that LAFC will not win. Yep, you heard it here first. Bold. <laughs> okay, was this tournament uh, overall should it have been played amid a pandemic? I know you're a you're a you're a close COVID watcher down there in West Des Moines. Uh, so no, I don't think it should have been. Uh, one of the reasons that I haven't really been talking about the tournament generally. Uh, is because I think it's 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 a tough area like to be in to hold this any any have it, to host any professional sports at the moment uh, in this country in particular. So I know that the bubble has more or less been successful once they 
uh, dumped a few teams. I know the NWSL just had a full tournament uh, where they didn't have any COVID cases within their bubble. So it's not that necessarily the bubble isn't working. Uh, for me, it's sort of all about the context and what it requires to have a bubble, which is near you know, daily tests for these players and staff um, who aren't, in my opinion, like a priority in a country that's facing testing shortages. I mean, it's basically as simple as that. And yeah, uh, and I think I think there probably is a discussion you could have where where people could try to you know justify the existence of these events because NBA is kicking off the same thing, NHL is in a bubble. Um, I think other sports are playing and using a ton of test, not a ton of testing capacity, but some testing capacity, and every little bit adds to that strain. Uh, so I think you could have those conversations conversations to try to justify it, but I don't think those conversations are really happening. And I think that at at a minimum, like the leagues need to justify their their own existence for doing this and say, yes, we understand that you know hospital workers, daycare teachers, whoever are facing long waits for test results. Uh, but here's why it's more important that we have our MLS's back tournament. Yeah, you can't really make. Th- you can't really make that case. <laughs> but you, I mean, but, you have to, right? Because we're doing it. So uh, it's like it's like if you're gonna boil and eat a live lobster, like you have to make the the case that it's it's okay to do this because it tastes really good. Do you have to make the case, or do you just suspend your disbelief and carry that's, on with your life? That's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what's happening. Is we just are gonna choose not to not to acknowledge that uh, the two things are are. In, very much adjacent to each other they're very much uh, affecting the other yeah yeah there are there are moral dilemmas everywhere in life i mean this is a big one i'm not trying to minimize it it's a big one more but there are you know a lot of moral dilemmas that we choose not to engage thoroughly with and that's that's why i'm not like out talking about the game sort of on the timeline it's because it's it's uncomfortable to talk about it you know i mean there's something really exciting happens you're like oh amazing brendan aronson play uh, after he got tested four times in the last week, like that yeah. kind of that kind of thing is always in sort of in the back of the mind. But also, it was an amazing play from Brendan Aronson. Well, and and the tournament is kind of fun. You know, it's this World Cup format, essentially group stage followed by a knockout round, single elimination, and you know, there's been some fun games. It's it was there's been a lot of trash soccer too, but there's been some so, fun games. Sometimes those things go hand in hand. That's true. That is true. I'm, I'm yeah. not kidding when I say that. Well, you know, like you look at Philly, Philly's, Philly's win over who did they beat last night? K- SKC last yes. night. I mean, the f- the second goal was just an absolute clown show, off, <laughs> off a like off a corner kick and. Uh, and it's the, sec- it's the second one of those we've seen in this tournament. San Jose and Vancouver had the like exact same situation of like a full 98 yard breakaway. Yeah, just in a normal first half of a soccer match yeah it was weird um it's also sad that there's no fc dallas i think i mean if we if we if you go with me here greg and suspend our disbelief that the tournament is uh somehow morally justified which we we can't really make that case it would have been nice to have dallas there to see to get some data on pomacall and Pepe and cannon and Whoever else hey, I'm forgetting. Jesus Ferreira. Yeah. Brandon Cervania. So we didn't get Tan- to see that. Tanner Tessman. Oh, the, Tanner. The EFC Dallas up and coming star. Um, and then 
you know, one question that's occurred to us, and I think there's been some discussion of it out there, is there going to be a, an exodus, you know, from MLS to Europe by young players or maybe even old players who, who want to get minutes and, and need to see the field? Because the bubble, while the bubble worked, uh, Major League Baseball and USL are showing that um, when you have when you travel for games and you have you know games at stadiums in various places, it it does get really complicated from a, a virus control perspective. Um, so there's no guarantee MLS is going to have the rest of the regular season. Will we see a bunch of people loaned out to Belgium and the Netherlands and and Germany? I, I think we will start to see some of that happen. Uh, it, it, going into like a, an Olympic year slash uh, World Cup qualifying year, for some of these kids who want to make their case, uh, I think they have to find a way to play somewhere. And I don't know what other uh, recourse they would have. I don't know if the national team would try to establish like a bubble mini camp or something. Uh, so I, I also think maybe just from a... Uh, financial standpoint, it might make sense for some of these teams to try to offload wages because I don't know what that will. I mean, we have no idea if the season doesn't happen, how teams will set up pay structures for yeah. players who aren't playing. So uh, we've seen a couple of uh, high-profile players from the U.S. women's national team, um, yep, go going over or entertaining offers from Europe to to play because there's probably some speculation that there won't be a regular NWSL season. Uh, so. It would not. It won't surprise me at all if we see some players sort of thinking ahead and trying to get ahead of that curve. Yeah. Well, Pomacall's played forty minutes since last fall, and um, if I'm him, I'm just begging my agent to to get me to tell a star. Yeah, get me to tell a star. I mean, let's let's shoot a little higher with here and Veen. <laughs> all right, but yes, I'm. That's that's something that we've kind of speculated about, and it won't surprise me if if players start trying to make that move. Okay. Let's get into some scouting reports. This is just what we're ready to say about a player after watching a bunch of their involvements in this tournament. We're not going to talk about uh, Gianluca Busio, Julian Araujo, Bryce Duke, or Sebastian Berhalter. They're all interesting young players, but they didn't really make an impact in this tournament. We're also not going to discuss veterans that much, although we're going to make some exceptions. Um, (laughs) And yeah, because you have some Jordan Morris material, I think. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk about Jordan Morris. You did a deep dive on the entire Seattle Sounders roster. <laughs> give me the new who. Give me the They're new the who juice. They're the defending champions. So, but but mostly we're going to focus on young players who are also making an impact. So there's a Venn diagram there that we are trying to hit right in the middle. Um, but I want to. So I want to start, if that's okay with you, by talking about we'll some right ahead. some young defenders. But first, quick word on Aaron Long. Since he's sort of the, we agree he's the floor at at right center back for the national team, right? That's what I would say. Not in, again, not in an entirely condescending way. Just if no. you want to, if you want to get into the national team, this is roughly what you have to do. This is who you have to beat out. Yeah, and and the good news for everybody gunning for his job is that he didn't do that much in this tournament. You know. Um, Red Bulls didn't have a good tournament. They crashed out in the group stage, and nobody really paid attention to Long. But the basics are this. He's strong in duels. He's especially strong in the air. He doesn't get beaten for pace over the top because he's fast. He also doesn't do hardly anything in possession. Um, So he sets a floor of solid defending and physicality and competitiveness. 
But the bad thing is he's allergic to progressive passing. And he's the presumptive starter at right center back for the national team. So can any of these young MLS center backs surpass him? Is kind which, of, ones are, which ones are you talking about? Okay, well, I'm going to start with uh, a guy who's not really even a center back in my mind. Um, but he's played he played some center back in this tournament. He's played some center back over the last year or two. It's James Sands. He's 20. He's at NYCFC. NYCFC lost to Philly and Orlando City, but advanced out of the group on a win over Inter Miami. Then they 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 beat somebody really badly, three to one, right? Who'd Toronto FC, I believe. Oh, yeah. uh, Toronto FC, Sands, uh, Io Akinola, and mostly without Josie Altador. Right. So then they they crushed Toronto in the round of sixteen, and now they're in the quarterfinals after limping through the group stage. It happens sometimes. So Sands started all three games and roughly split his time between center back and defensive midfield. The good news is he makes a big impact as a deep-lying midfield destroyer because um, he's good at reading the game, reasonably athletic, really tough in the tackle, and he times his interventions well. He's just got a knack for applying pressure and taking the ball from the other team, and he's comfortable enough in possession to find someone's feet after he wins the ball. He's kind of like he's kind of like Kyle Beckerman, but with a more conservative haircut. <laughs> And fewer legendary red cards. Yeah. Although he, I mean, he's going to get his share of uh, discipline over the years, I think. He's pretty. Yeah, he, from good. the tackles that, that kind of I saw from, I believe it was Watkey's video, uh, he really isn't afraid to put his knees through through guys' thighs no. on tackles. No, yeah. Yeah, he'll, he, he, I mean, there's there's a lot of good in that. So for national team purposes, the problem is he's not a good distributor, He's a little bit like in the way that Aaron Long is. I think he's a little more elegant than Aaron Long on the ball, but he's he's not hitting line-breaking passes. So he doesn't fit Berhalter's profile for that number six position. And as a center back, he's slightly undersized, and I think his impact diminishes a lot because even though he's a good defender, his ability to pressure the ball is sort of negated when he's at center back because he's on the back line. He's also not great in the air. And his unwillingness to play those risky passes becomes more of a problem in the build-out from center back than it would be at at central midfield. In about, it just makes things more claustrophobic back there. So in in about 275 minutes in the group stage, he played exactly one line-breaking pass. So he's not for me. He's not a, a center back candidate for the national team. He is a good central defensive midfield prospect, but not the way Burhalter is running his team right now. Not the way Burhalter's running his team and the way Burhalter runs his team, in my opinion, and I'll kind of get into this later with some of my scouting reports, uh, makes a much shorter list for that style of six than if we're going to go like sort of pure ball winner. I imagine Sands now has a lot more competition against other pure ball winners. Uh, I mean, who who would you put in that category? Tyler Adams, Tyler obviously. Adams, yes. But that's it, I think. As a pure ball winner, number six. I mean, unless you want to throw in Alfredo Morales and Danny Williams, and so yeah, and even like if you're going to get into just if that person's job is just to win the ball, then you get, in my opinion, like Weston McKinney becomes a a candidate for that position as well. If Adams can't go, yeah, I suppose. But I I think Sands reminds me a little bit of remember when Jonathan Gonzalez was still in the fold and playing for Monterey as an 18 year old. 
I do. I, I remember it very well. You do. Okay. You, yeah. You tipped me. You tipped me off to him very early in the process. He. It's. It's similar. Similar kind of uh, alertness and intelligence, finding what the other team is doing and breaking it up. You know. And I don't. I mean, McKinney is plenty intelligent, but I don't think he has that alertness as as a defensive midfielder. Anyway, we don't need to get too deep in the weeds <laughs> on this. Right, um. So yeah, that's James Sands. Probably not a center back long term for the national team, in my humble opinion. Uh, the second center back that has gotten a lot of um, a lot of attention in this tournament is Mark McKenzie, twenty one, for the Philadelphia Union. He started every game for them in this tournament, and Philly are uh, now they're in the semis, right? They just won last night, three to one, beat yeah, Sporting. Cruised. Yeah, cruised over Sporting Kansas City. Uh. McKenzie, I re- I'll just be honest. I really like Mark McKenzie's game. Um, he's got a lot of good tools. His first touch is almost always positive. He strikes the ball sharply. It's hard to even explain. It's 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 pleasing to the eye the way he strikes the ball. In my opinion, what do you think? It's just. I mean, you just want to sum it up with his still from that U twenty qualifying tournament, right? Where he's where he just sort of uh, pings that ball into Mendez's feet. Yeah. It's, Breaks three lines. The ball, yeah, exactly. And the ball just like leaps off his foot and it's sharp. He also moves pretty fluidly with the ball at his feet and he wants to play line breaking passes. They don't always come off. You know, sometimes he sometimes he hits an errant pass. He's also good at running down and shielding a ball in behind and pretty strong in the air, even though he's not the tallest center back prospect that we have. So I I'm as far as young American center backs go. To me, he looks the part of elite potential the most. Uh, pops off the screen with that sharpness of passing, strength, and fluidity. The, the one problem, and it's a big one, is that he can look out to see when he's marking a runner in the box and the ball gets to the byline. He just kind of like, he doesn't have an instinct for you know, finding his marker and, and getting, getting, ball, getting goal side. I don't think, and that's that is a big problem. I think it's something you can work on, right? As a oh, center yeah. back, You'll, reps. I mean, reps game like reps against really good attackers, where uh, where you learn how they're going to lose you, and then can start to anticipate how they're going to lose you, and the chess match continues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the the two the two occasions that I noticed were in the opener against NYCFC when. Bear from NYCFC. That's the Brazilian striker from NYCFC. Lost him, and then scuffed a header from point blank. It also happened on Pizarro's goal for Inter Miami in that two-one uh, win for Philly, where he just kind of lost. He just kind of lost his guy. No real reason for it. Just sort of was ball watching, and his guy got free. So, I don't know. Any questions or pushback on McKenzie? How do you like his weak foot, Bells? I like it. I like it quite well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, he hit a he hit a crossfield diagonal with his left foot last night that was on a dime to Bodoya to help set up a you know a somewhat dangerous attacking move. Okay, and, I don't think and, there's anybody in the any center back in the pool who can hit a a weak foot diagonal with any sort of reliability. Is there? That, no, I'll I'll back you up on that one. So we're we're hoping that he becomes at, at the very least like the kind of center back you could employ in games where defense is going to be less the priority and uh, distribution is going to be higher on the priority list because we have those games. Yeah. Are you ready to, are you ready to say he could be that player 
in in June. I mean, that's that's eight months off. That's a year off. How's my calendar math? I don't know. I don't know. I I I, I hate making predictions. I'm I'm out of that business. But right. but I do think of all our young center backs, he's the one who looks the most likely to be really good someday. Not that he is right now. And I would say even more than even more than Chris Richards. Richards is a better defender than McKenzie. He's in a we think a better club situation, but um, but McKenzie's McKenzie's comfort with the ball at his feet is uh, is is on a different level from Richards. I think. All right, so he's at, at the very least in a in a pretty good starting place for a twenty one year old center back. Twenty one, yeah. McKenzie. Yeah. Maybe he hopefully he goes on loan to Freiburg. He's gonna love right. it. He's gonna love it in the Black Forest. <laughs> better, better than Tim Ream today, or not? Not there yet. <laughs> I don't. I don't I'm asking I hate, that genuinely. I hate that argument, but I, yeah, I think Ream is, you know, Ream with his 12 years of experience advantage over McKenzie is probably still a better center back than McKenzie, but it's, uh, it's gotten closer than it was six months ago. And and McKenzie has been coming back from injuries and concussions and. Uh, so we like the trajectory he's on at the moment. Yeah, that's all, and that's all we need to be. That's all he needs to have right now is a. He's moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think I, I do want to make the point. I think he's the. You, you look at the landscape of center backs we have. Nobody is really that exciting except Richards and McKenzie. And, uh, you know, somebody could, somebody else could emerge as, you know, that sort of modern center back that other nations are producing, but we're not. Uh, McKenzie seems like the most likely to do that, in my opinion. All right. Well, I'll push back a little, and I know that he might not have the modern distribution that we're looking for, but uh, is Miles Robinson a guy we should be excited about? And I'm going to then just let you take it away. Okay. Well, Robinson, 23 center back, 23-year-old center back for Atlanta United, uh, is a little bit in the mold of Aaron Long, I think. Really good in duels, really good defender. Uh, strong, physically imposing, more physically imposing than just about any of these guys we're talking about. But again, not much of a passer. Uh, I think he he attempted like seven or eight long passes in the in Atlanta's ill-fated three-game tournament, and I think it was like three for nine or something, three for eight, and none of them was none of them signaled like hey this is this is a center back who's going to be able to distribute out of the back and that's consistent with what kind of the data we have on miles robinson going yeah. into the tournament right yeah. that he's not going to be spraying the ball around not that that's necessarily his job but there's certainly nothing in the in the record suggesting that's what he's going to add to your team right that and and maybe that's okay for the national team you know the we, we've talked about this there's there's the strong possibility that the the way we're going to set up our defense for the national team is we're have Brooks and then Brooks, who is a good passer, and then a center back who's just a really good defender next to him. I mean, that's kind of the way we've done it recently. So Robinson fits that bill pretty well. But I'm talking about like in the future, you know, when we if we're ever going to win a World Cup and we need to have two really good center backs, Robinson's probably not that guy either. I mean, to be honest, no, nobody probably is that guy. You know, nobody <laughs> no, here is. Nobody's going to be the World Cup winning center back. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that's. I, I think Robinson. Robinson's impressive in a lot of ways, just not, uh, not much of a passer and not 
super comfortable in possession. All right. So out of out of those guys, then, uh, and I know I, I threw Tim Ream in there because you know Ream is on the verge of being promoted to the Premier League. Uh, are any of those guys, do you think, knocking on Aaron Long's door today? Or is, is Aaron Long, is the inertia of Aaron Long's 2019 with the national team uh, what seems to be, in my opinion, like Burhalter thinks Aaron Long is a tremendous leader. I don't know why. I, I, I just have that impression. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, do you think any of those guys are going to be able to overcome that inertia in the short term? Or do they really need to stand out more? Again, Miles Robinson was is coming off a MLS All-11 type caliber season. Mm-hmm. Uh What's it going to take for them to unseat Aaron Long? Have any of them really done it, or are they even are they even really close? I don't, I don't think anybody's done it. I mean, it's hard to know what Berhalter is thinking, but Robinson's probably the closest because of the aforementioned All Eleven MLS defender uh, honors. But I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what tips the scales there. And so right now, probably give it to the inertia, right? I would, yeah. Um, just the the momentum that Long has by being in the squad previously probably carries him through to next June when we start World Cup qualifying. But you know, that's unless you know, unless Mark McKenzie really breaks out or Chris Richards really breaks out, then it might change. But I don't know what more Miles Robinson can do just demonstrate consistency over time, I suppose. Yeah. And even that, I mean, I, something tells me that if you're, if you had a whole season where you were that caliber, but that wasn't going to be enough. Uh, I think, I think right now in Burhalter's mind, uh, no one else is really ready yet. Uh, like you said, that changes immediately. If Chris Richards uh, is loaned or sold on to like a mid table Bundesliga team and earns a spot, that's, you know, that changes the conversation that day, mm-hmm. I think for most people. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And you know, if McKenzie ends up getting playing time at Celtic or something, that could that could move the move the needle as well. Another center back, last one I want to talk about and I'll I'll make this quick is uh Justin Glad, 23-year-old from Real Salt Lake, also Olympic eligible. RSL conceded twice in the group stage only and then uh and then they got they lost in that barn burner to San Jose, the San Jose Earthquakes in the round of 16. Glad played every minute of the tournament for RSL. He's a little tricky for me to assess because he's big and he's fast and he defends with a lot of urgency and energy. He also will occasionally hit a line-breaking pass, but something about him just doesn't convince, and I'm not sure what it is. He, He looks like a solid MLS center back right now, but... He doesn't have the smoothness of McKenney or the lockdown alertness of, say, a James Sands. And he's two years older than them. And if we're nitpicking, he's still not physically that strong and uh, loses some aerial duels against big physical uh, strikers. Also, good good straight line speed, but not quickness in close quarters, if you know what I mean. All right, so the fact that, the fact that he's got two years on those players and still, like, are you kind of thinking maybe we've gotten about as much as we're going to get out of Justin Glad? You mean as a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. No, I know. Again, it's twenty three, so it's a bit of a fool's errand with center backs to say this is the this is the end of their 
U.S. men's national team involvement. Uh, but given his competition, does it feel like he's he's well behind? I think it's enough of a morass in there with all these center backs that anything could happen. But but right now he looks the least likely of the guys I've mentioned to emerge. All right. Well, he was he was named on the qualifying team for March for the Olympics. Uh, so, so again, so he, it seems like he's, he's somewhat rated by the, by the U S staff and it, we'll get his chance, uh, to show what he can do. Yeah. I mean, and he does have like several thousand minutes of experience as a first team professional. So he's been around the block a bit. Those, those are the center backs that I wanted to talk about. There's others, you know, I, I wish we could get to Abubakar Keita. And um, I think that's the only other center back I was interested in, but just didn't get to him. He played. Right, we'll, to, we'll add Pineda to our. Uh, oh yeah, Marcy, to our, our list Pineda. as well. Yeah. Of of just again, just guys we can keep track of every week if we get to have a season. Right. Do you do you want to do some midfielders, or should I go straight to the? I've, I feel like I've been doing a lot of talking. Should I go straight to the fullbacks? No, give give me a chance here, Bells. Let me do some center mids. Okay, because this it. is the this is I think the most contentious uh, position in the national team. All right, yeah, give, let me relax over here. Go for it. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to kind of cluster the center mids, but I'm not sure they all necessarily fit in the same role. And most of the attention is going to go with uh, the first we're going to talk about here, Christian Roldan, who is going to probably elicit a lot of eye rolls as soon as we say his name, hmm. because I think I think Christian Roldan is kind of dismissed by a lot of people as a staple in the U.S. national team. Am, am I wrong about that? I mean, you almost sort of tune out as soon as you hear his name or see him in the lineup. Yeah, I don't I don't pay that much attention because I assume that he won't play that much going forward. And I think that's sort of what everyone says. Well, he's just Adam Standin, uh, but but you know, guys get hurt. Like no, we're not going to field the exact same eleven for every for every game in qualifying. And even if we do, we got guys coming off the bench. Uh, Christian Roldan has played 950 minutes in the Berhalter era, which is the most of any center midfielder in the pool. Uh, and he's only behind Long, Ream, and Areola among all outfield players. So he's obviously pretty highly rated by Berhalter. And even if Adams was back, uh, it's you know you could make a case that at least through 2019. Roldan was like the third center midfield choice after Adams and McKenney. Oh man. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's far off. So, uh, so I don't think you can really just ignore him or, or I don't think we can just sort of have our eyes glaze over at the, at the mention of his name. Uh, he was first, first guy off the bench in the gold cup final and he started, and that was when Christian Pulisic was still considered one of our center midfielders with him slit moving out, yeah. you know, that, that could move Roldan a slot higher. He, he started the Nations League uh, first leg against Canada. So, you know, he's he's in the picture unless, unless like, the Canada game and the subsequent legit performance in the next Canada game has, has, like, just knocked him out of the conversation. Why do you think, you know, as unbiased as you can be, why do you think he continues to be in the picture? <laughs> okay, so uh, you know who, who loves Christian Oldon more than Greg Berhalter does? Brian Schmetzer. Math. Math loves Christian Roldan a lot. So uh, the good folks at American Soccer Analysis uh, during the pandemic established a new 
uh, or not a new, they didn't establish a new metric, but they've very publicly released data on on their metric called goals added. Have we talked, have we talked about goals added much? I don't, I don't think we've talked about it in the podcast, no. So it's it's this idea that, you know, everyone at this point is pretty familiar with expected goals and expected assists. Uh, goals added is a metric that tries to apply sort of the same concept, but to every action on the field rather than just actions that lead to shots. So, you know, anytime a player receives the ball and then moves the ball, it goals added is going to measure the where everyone is on the field at the first moment and where everyone and the ball are on the field at the next action and say, how much did you, did this action improve one team's chances of scoring and hurt the other team's chances of scoring? And, you know, Ed does all that math and figures out how you affected the situation and then totals all of those numbers up for each player to say how many goals they contribute to their team. This is this is essentially the same concept that Liverpool's been sort of famously employing uh, within their scouting networks. Hmm. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a noble, it seems like a noble endeavor. It, for me, it's like sort of the end, the end goal of, of analytics is if they, if you can get this right, this is what you're trying to measure. If you can, if you can isolate all, all other variables, this is how you determine how, how effective a player is. Uh, so, so goals added, goals added on is a pretty picture. Yeah. Roldan does really well in goals added. And I know Burhalter in his, uh, in his interview on the Paul Carr podcast, is that, is that where he talked the, about uh, expected how they value like, is what it's called? Expected yeah, they, they, value. He, he, like, I don't think he actually, he didn't, certainly didn't talk about this particular American soccer analysis uh, metric, but he did sort of describe a metric that is the same concept of, of measuring uh, every, like, each action and how it affects their chances of scoring. Um, and Roldan scores really well, at least on the American soccer analysis, goals added uh, value. Mm. So if Burhalter is leaning heavily on these, on these sort of stats, Roldan comes off looking really well, and Berhalter must think that he can use that. He can he can harness that value that Roldan, you know, seems to bring on a spreadsheet and get it into the field. Well, okay, having watched a bunch of Roldan <laughs> and and cross reference that with his goals added performance, do you does it make sense to you why he does so well in the numbers? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> we need we need to get a couple of the folks from American Soccer Analysis on the pod to like run us through some rolled on stuff. He's he's like an extremely boring player to watch play. Uh, I don't mean that. I mean he his decisions don't ever seem to to uh, further the cause of scoring goals. He's not so, he's not saucy. Let's just say <laughs> there's very little sauce. Uh, and, and, you know, like when I was watching him on the eye test, I was like, man, he kind of just really looks like an off-brand Darlington Nagby. Uh, and then, like, even then, though, he's not nearly as – because Nagby's doing all this cool stuff that usually results in sideways passes. But he's, like, you know, this in the middle of the chaos, and that's what's sort of so sexy about Darlington Nagby is he's receiving the ball and is completely unflappable despite being surrounded by two or three guys always under pressure. Right. Roldan seems to, like – filter himself out of that chaos, usually by dropping deep. So it's not like he finds great pockets inside the, a team's uh, shape. Like, he usually sort of drops out of it if he's playing that center mid role and and then plays from there. Uh, now, he also plays some winger, and he, he finds himself as, like, a wing player at times. And and I'm, I need to give the, the stats folks more credit because I'm always like, well, is that what's tipping, like, tipping the scales here? Is he, is he getting credit for, like, 
doing winger things, but being compared to other holding center mids. But I don't think that's the case. Hmm. Okay. Well, help help me help me reconcile these two disparate facts. Um, so the the what the stats really liked about Roldan last year, and I should also say that over this small sample size size of 2020, uh, these stats don't particularly love Christian Roldan, okay. the okay. goals plus. Uh, but from 2019, basically all of his value is wrapped up in uh, passing and interrupting. So we're also going to need them to explain fully what interrupting is. Uh, but but that's where he's he's like a negative on everything else. Um, but his interrupting is like he's a world class interrupter. Is that just disruption, like break breaking up plays, winning the ball? Is yeah, that what the, interrupting the, means the traits they they measure and score: are dribbling, fouling, interrupting, passing, receiving, and shooting. Okay, he's so Roldan's positive on passing, and what, his highest score by far is interrupting, and then he's negative everywhere else for 2019. Okay. Well, so that's, that's I mean, that's that's what it is like. He just he just gets the ball and shifts it to the next player. And somehow that I don't know if he's just like a Texas Tech quarterback and he just the system at Seattle is so like a uh, well drilled that he's benefiting from that. Or if or if there just really is so much more to roll down than than we can see. Maybe the metrics are are not quite yet able to isolate Nico Lodero's <laughs> actions from roll downs. Or Jordan Morris. Yeah, right, right. Well, he's, in the same way that Aaron Long is kind of the, I don't know, the benchmark for a national team center back right now, it's fair to say Roldan is sort of the benchmark for a midfielder, right? I think I think that's about what we're, where we're at. And the, the question, I think, a big one is going to be whether if Burhalter goes with sort of this new system, if Roldan is considered uh, no, the number three man in, as, a, as a pressing number eight, uh, as he was as like a as as he was in that sort of eight ten role, and and I don't know I have no idea if Berhalter sees him as that or if this completely uh, takes Roldan out of Berhalter's plans. Hmm. But I still wanted to spend eight minutes talking about it. You got eight more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so who's who who's who you got next then? So next up is Jackson Yule. And I, I think this one's going to be a little bit more immediate. I think this one's going to have a more immediate effect on on how the U.S. plays. Okay, yeah. Because he is the presumptive starter at the number six for the U.S. men's national team. I think that's maybe going a little far because we don't know how Michael Bradley is going to factor in. Michael Bradley has started all of the important games that he was available to start. Uh, in that last Canada game, he was injured from the MLS Cup. Uh, yeah. finals so I think it'll be Yule I think I think the uh, Yule's mobility I think Burhalter is settled on as being necessary I mean his relative mobility his mobility relative to Michael Bradley yeah it's it it can't be it, we can't be going back to Bradley for important games can we I don't I don't think so I think I'm pretty I'm pretty convinced that it's Yule's uh, spot at the moment and this is where I mean like I'm still mostly opposed to the to the sort of Jackson Ewell role existing in the first place, uh, but you, I think you can at least see the logic of it. What is the logic of it in fifty words or less? <laughs> well, the logic of it is that uh, the job the U.S. has to do is to break down inferior regional opponents who are going to give us the ball yeah. and 
and dare us to to score against their low block. And that was a really successful tactic through the 2018 cycle where we finished fifth out of six teams. And and I don't think you can say, well, our talent pool is just so low during that cycle because uh, surely our talent pool wasn't fifth out of those six teams. Right. So right. for me, so for me, the problem is like how we deploy that talent. And as, as Bob Renico might put it, it's our division of labor. Uh, I think our, I think our biggest issue was the predictability of the players that we choose to play. Uh, you watch those games and it's not just Kuvo, you know, it's Panama away. It's Costa Rica. It's home at home. It's Honduras away. We're just so boring. We're so vanilla. Like nobody ever does anything that's unexpected. Mm -hmm. So we always attempt the obvious pass to the obvious teammate who's in like this obvious space. And it, we just run these little two man games all over the field. And assuming we even like execute those obvious plays, uh, because a lot of times we like force things in a, in an obvious way. Um, you know, the, the opposing low block just sort of moves in sync with us. Like they see what's coming at the, at the same speed we do. And they're just moving into the new space and we just never seem to trouble them. Uh, which is why all of our attack in that cycle basically came from Christian Pulisic because even though he's predictable, like he plays predictably, you just can't stop him anyway. You know what he's going to do, but you just can't stop him. So he can unbalance a team by himself. So Yule is in there to um, that sixth position is there to spray the ball, spray the ball from from the middle out to one of the corners to an overlapping fullback who then whacks it across the front of the goal. No, I think I think it goes even farther than that. He has that passing range, that that fabled will trap passing range. Uh, but I think more than that, what it comes down to is Jackson Yule makes unexpected passes uh, against set defenses. So he does. That's, that's like, true. That's like my whole scouting report is that he's going to take the ball and he's going to make a progressive pass uh, that isn't telegraphed by his body shape. And that's like that's like the entire bar he has to clear to to make his value worthwhile and to uh, essentially get us get us through these qualifying matches. And if he's making those passes to Christian Pulisic and Giovanni Reyna and Timmy Weah and even Jordan Morris, uh, that's going to be more dangerous than Pulisic and Ariola and Corey Baird. Who was in? The, who were our wingers in the? Darlington last Nagby cycle? was a winger in the last cycle. Okay. Yeah, Fabian Johnson played a little bit, but yes, that's that's the gist. But they were always receiving the ball in that last cycle um, again in like against a defense that was very set up already by the time they received it. And Ewell's passes aren't always super elegant. Like sometimes he's really jamming in an overhit ball to get it to that guy that he that he's not looking at. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it only gets through because the defender wasn't expecting him to hit it. And so he has to hit it with a ton of pace uh, to use that element of surprise. But it's enough. I mean, they get there. They get to the teammate. And for that like briefest moment, you know, Christian Pulisic has the ball and the defense is not quite set. And that's sort of the only domino that we need to fall, I think, is mm -hmm. is what the gamble is to justify Jackson Ewell's place in the starting 11. Okay. This is a really good scouting report. Uh, <laughs> I mean, all, all I said was that he, he passes the ball away from where his hips are facing. That's that's the Jackson Ewell scouting report. Brevity is the soul of wit. What's <laughs> what? Do you have any um, cautions about him? Uh, so I think the the bar he has to clear the biggest bar he has to clear is going to be his defensive liability, uh, and and here's where I think playing for San Jose helps in that regard. Like if we're going to play that pressing eight system where you know let's say it's Adams and McKenney ahead of him hunting, uh, 
for them to hunt and put pressure on team, we have to know that the team can't immediately just like clip the ball into the space that Adams and McKenney vacate and just assume that the guy that Jackson Ewell is responsible for in that zone is going to be able to beat Jackson Ewell to the ball. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, that for, for a competent soccer player, most guys should be able to do that. But with Jackson Ewell playing at San Jose, we see that because if he was really bad at that, like extremely bad at that, then teams could easily just draw out San Jose's center, mar- center, center mids because they're man marking and then just clip balls into Jackson Ewell's space all day and trust that whoever's playing against him will win it and run at Jackson Ewell. But I don't really think that that is a tactic that, you know, has been proven to just work every time against San Jose. Yeah. And and Ewell did show, I thought, in that game against Canada in November that he was more of a defensive stalwart than Bradley was. I think so. And you can still, you still, he still has some protection built in there uh, with, with like a McKenney or a, or an Adams. If they're, you know, as, as like a, they're not both just going to be chasing all over the field. Like, like San Jose's actually would to man Mark players. Like there's still that connection to them. Uh, I just, for when you compare Ewell to Bradley, that's something Bradley might not actually be able to do. If you just leave Bradley alone, like he, you might just be able to exploit. Teams would probably be able to exploit that uh, space. I mean, we saw what happened when Bradley was left alone in 2017. Right, right. So that's that's about it. That's my Jackson Ewell uh, piece, and and it kind of helps explain why a James Sands wouldn't even really be in competition for that role because the role only exists to to hit that like unexpected pass. If Sands isn't doing that, we can we can plug in someone else if it's just going to be a ball winning role. Yeah. Yep. It's very clear. I mean, some people some of the people who who tweet at us on Twitter don't understand that yet, but and probably those are people who don't even listen to the podcast, let's be honest. But <laughs> but there is a very clear role for that number 6 job and until until Burhalter changes it or or the, we see the next evolution of the Burhalter system it's not a job that really fits Sands. It's not really a job that fits Adams either. So. Right. And this is, this is the other piece of this. The last one I'll do on, on Yule here is uh, if he can't do it, I think it will be very clear very quickly. So I don't think it'll be some extended elongated, like, like we saw in 2019 with sort of the Bradley trap. They ate up all of the minutes in 2019, even though we weren't great in my opinion, in, in sort of those real tests that we had at doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. So we didn't get that field stretching pass constantly from those guys. If you can't break lines or if he's a huge defensive liability, I think it will stand out very quickly. And I think we'd then be able to sort of move on from that and, and move to the next, the next framework, the next iteration. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, very good. Very good. Who's, who's your next midfielder you want to talk about? Well, that was, those are my two midfielder spells. I got, I had Frankie Amaya, and and it was basically the same thing as James Sands. He's not making a lot of like incisive line breaking passes. Uh, he's a nuisance guy, so he's actually pretty good pressing. He might end up if he's going to ever factor in. Uh, it might be in more of that like uh, pressing eight role, who's who's capable of, you know, connecting passes once he wins it. But he's not. He's not like threading passes through tight windows. So. He's not, in my opinion, he's not just because he sits in that space for Cincinnati. Uh, I don't think he's really particularly in contention for for the Yule role. Yeah, definitely not. Maybe one of the eight roles if, if a lot happens, but there's a lot yeah. of competition for those jobs. 
come Olympics, I mean, it might be one of those things where come Olympics, depending on where all of our uh, tier one and a half, tier two prospects have filtered. If you think of Amaya as like a tier three, tier four Olympic prospect, like he could, he could get some looks in Olympic camp. Okay. Do you want to do you want to talk about Brendan Aronson here, or should we? Oh yeah, we should, shouldn't we? <laughs> I mean, everyone's Ar- talking about Brendan Aronson. Yeah, he's gotten a ton of attention in this tournament. Apparently, some clubs in Germany are scouting him. Can, can Don't I just know say what real that quick, means. That's that's what I, that's what bugs me the most is that like you constantly hear about so and so team is monitoring a player, and it's like this is 2020. Like we were talking about with this data stuff. Anybody who plays any level of professional soccer is on every is on the same database as every other player and right. can be sorted by their by their production levels. So I have no idea what it, when they what they mean when they say that that Gladbach is monitoring Brendan Aronson. Yeah, I mean, to? you'd like to think it signals an uh, like an extra level of attention beyond just like um, the part time scout watching them on Y Scout, but. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it means at all. So all like Freiburg's entire staff is huddled around a computer <laughs> monitor watching ESPN Plus at whatever time that is in Germany. Christian, get over here, <laughs> Mister Strike. Uh, I don't know. That's this is this is all like cynical because it wouldn't. I mean, I have no doubt that some of our uh, players are being considered, or you know, whatever whatever that process is. Uh, for some of these clubs, I'm just always I'm just, whenever I see that, it just kind of makes me chuckle because it's so vague. Yep, it is. It, it creates a the it creates the impression of of having significance without having any, which you know I have to admit I'm kind of a master at that <laughs> myself. Um, so Aronson has he been all that good? He, if you go on Twitter.com, you will. Th- think that he has i even i retweeted uh an angle of his assist from last night that sanjeev tweeted out so i i'm even i'm part of this we should always celebrate those those moments because that is like total sauce uh but what gets like a little bit funny and this i know this will be rich kind of coming from youth hype podcast scuffed is that people like are unanimously assigning now like seven figure price tags to him going to the bundesliga where I'm, I'm just still pretty skeptical that that's going to happen. Yeah, he's not a game breaker yet. I mean, he did, he did that, he did that assist. We can't take that away from him. <laughs> and if that were who he is, like if he's doing that every game, uh, and and that's what he is next game and the game after, then suddenly yes, that's a, that probably becomes a seven figure player. Uh, but that we have we have quite a bit of data on Aronson, and that's not who he is at the moment. No, he has that play aside. Two assists. I don't know what the advanced metrics show, but two assists in this tournament so far. Two assists in, in this tournament, uh, and the this is one where he's like the anti Roldan, where everyone loves him, but the math actually does not care particularly that much for Brendan Aronson. Hmm. Some of that, some of that might be volume, uh, which has been a lot of the talk surrounding him. Is that for as uh, hype? hype as as much hype as he's getting he hadn't been particularly involved in games as far as just like the number of times he gets on the ball and you know at at john muller john space muller dummy run john space muller Uh, yeah had had the great explainer for why that's the case because aronson at the moment stays in cover shadows too much when his team's in possession uh if he 
was like watches that video and goes, oh, I can fix that and fixes it, then that makes him a completely different player. But when you're only on the ball a few like uh, a dozen times a game, twenty times a game, you can't at, you can't accumulate enough enough like positive moments to to be well regarded by those advanced metrics. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget which game Muller made that that video from. I guess he made it from a, clips from several games. But you know, last night against SKC, Aronson touched the ball thirty six times. Uh, it, it's still not that many for for somebody who wants to be a high volume ten. But so. that's a, I mean, that's a fifty percent improvement from from the uh, first game of the tournament, where I think he he literally touched it like twenty one times. Hmm. Wait, I'm sorry, he didn't touch it thirty six times. Scratch that, he touched it fourteen times last night. Ah, uh, for real? I... Yeah. So it's. Uh, th- these are Y Scout figures, so that I know that some people say they're not the best at, da- at data collection, but take them for what they're worth. 19 touches against Inter Miami, 18 touches against Orlando City. So that's going to be 20. the rub, and that 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 will like that will probably uh, I don't know if I want to say scare some teams off, but uh, that will stand out to teams who are who are trying to figure out if this is a guy they want to add. Certainly, if they want to add him for seven figures. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm not, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be excited about Brendan Aronson. We love like any any prospect who's doing who has a pulse as an attacker uh, in the American pool. It's just that the pendulum has swung very far, uh, very quickly for Brendan Aronson. Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna keep watching him, but I don't think it's fair to say we're not as hyped as a lot of people are. Is that? I mean, that's what I'm gathering from your voice. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's weird because I'm I am hyped about him. I think it's great that we have this kid doing this. Uh, I don't think that means he's a lock for Champions League football next year. Okay. Okay, well, you've got some some forwards to talk about, but why don't you let me do my fullbacks first? Yeah, give us that left-back situation. Yeah. Two left-backs to talk about. Sam Vines, 21, at Colorado, the Colorado Rapids. Colorado crashed out of the tournament, and I think, you know, Vines put in serious work. He reminds me a little bit of Long, sort of in that same cut from that same cloth as a defender. Athletic, competitive, strong in duels. Got beaten by a couple notable balls in behind, but didn't give up much defensively. Had some success against Minnesota carrying the ball up the line and finding feet, but didn't find a lot of joy out on the flank and didn't progress the ball all that much, which could be a team team problem as much as anything because the Rapids are pretty bad. Um. I'm happy Vines is in the player pool. Really want us to develop a left back who can tilt the game, and he's not quite that yet. So I'm, you know, I, we saw we all saw him in February against Costa Rica. I thought he was decent in that game, um, but not special. And I think that's kind of like that's kind of what he still is, you know. Right, and and it's a bit telling that that still could be like, well, it's probably still enough for a call up. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think so. The second one I want to talk about is not all that different from him. It's Chase Chase Gasper, twenty four year old left back for Minnesota United. Minnesota has made it to the quarterfinals of this tournament, and their left back has been a standout performer. He is a tough defender. He wins most of his duels, and he logs a lot of interceptions for the position. He's not a plus plus passer of the ball, and his crossing is only so so. But he is able to wiggle out of tight spots with a couple touches, and can find a target behind the first line of defense with his feet. A lot of times, he's passing it in the air to uh, 
toy or shown is it Schoenfeld? Um, so he pushes up the flank and regularly gets involved in the attack, which is what we want our left back to be able to do. For now, it seems to me like he's ahead of Vines in the pecking order, just based on the evidence of these last few games. And he should be a solid option at left back for Berhalter in the coming year. So I'm I'm a little higher on Gasper than I am on Vines. Okay. Uh, do you think that's a today only thing? You think that? I mean, is it sort of pointless? They both have ceilings that we don't really can't really predict. Yeah, I think I think incremental improvement in the way they cross the ball and the way they find like find a final ball is uh, is what we we should look for from Vines and Gasper. You know, like actually, actually present danger to the opponent in the final third, um, which I don't think either of them really does at the moment. Otherwise, you know, they they are a solid. They're both solid defenders. I think Gasper's probably a little better defender than Vines right now, but Vines is probably more athletic. Gasper's three years older. And, so. and effectively, there there is no incumbent at the position, right? I mean, we're talking about Tim Reams versus uh, Serginio Dest as a makeshift left back, and then it's it's going to be these guys or Anthony Robinson. Basically, doesn't seem like doesn't seem like Fabian Johnson's going to be in a, invited to camp anytime soon. Yeah, don't rule out Daniel Lovitz. I kind of am. That's kind of, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm kind of ruling out Daniel Lovitz. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wide open field for that position so i if i'm chase gasper's mom i'm you know i'm saving up to buy plane tickets to some world cup qualifiers i was just gonna say the october window should it be a domestic only window but world cup qualifiers you can you can buy those tickets if he's you know as a backup as a backup they'll probably play one of those games in minnesota yeah that's right get your hopes up yeah, let's start saving our money to go to all seven of the away matches. <laughs> all right, all right. What, who else do you have as, as our left back pool? That's all I got. That's all I got for now. I think that covers all of the MLS's back left back pool. George yeah. Bello played some games. I'm yeah, not going to ask you to get into it. We're not going to talk about that right now. Um, I think we should go to. We got a, f- a f- handful of other players to talk about. Three in particular, Greg. You talking about the forward pool? Yep. All right, let's go. So the forward pool that I, that I uh, did my homework on was uh, Jordan Morris, uh, Ao Akinola, and Jeremy Abobase. Abob- um, okay. Who do you want me to start with, Bells? Ao Akinola. All right, Ao Akinola is sort of the the star who was riding the momentum before Brendan Aronson and a hamstring injury cruelly took it away. Was it a hamstring? Was it a hamstring? I'm not sure. So Akinola, let us know. Akinola amassed five goals in the first three group stage games before missing the round of 16 knockout game with an injury. Uh, and that kind of, that, that got a lot of buzz obviously because he'd kind of, he, you could say he came out of nowhere. I think his last game prior to this was a USL two was a Toronto two game in the USL. So I don't think people had AO Akinola as a five goal scorer no. going into this tournament potential golden boot winner no they did Uh, not no they did not i i certainly did not i thought i i had sort of written him off um because because he was playing for toronto too that and you know even as even with the u20s a team that i really enjoyed and watched a lot of he was always you know kind of a bull in a china shop 
you know, like not a, not a, not very technical, um, not great at combining. Okay. Well, this is going to blow your mind a little bit, Bells, but my report is basically that, uh, he's, he's a bit of a bull in a China shop. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was like his most effective moments were, um, like his very the the thing he did best in this tournament was to straight race behind the back line uh, and get free and get found, uh, which is two parts. One, there's there is like a skill to that. Obviously, there's timing a run, uh, communicating with the the player on the ball to coordinate this. But two, and I think one of the other themes of this MLS's back semicolon tournament is that back lines have been an absolute shambles. Okay. Like you just have the most ridiculous like zigzag back lines, uh, where where like the near sideline fullback who's not marking anyone is like four yards deeper than everyone else, and so a guy can just wade where normally he would be. It'd be like a everyone would know he's offside immediately. Like now the guy's just on and has the has this breakaway. Like that has been like an ever present part of this tournament for me, and so I think we've really seen an inflation in uh, in sort of these scoring chances. Mm. Akinola has a ton of these breakaways. He actually has, that's not where his goals have come from <laughs> surprisingly because he's, he's had those chances saved quite a bit uh, or he's been taken down and fouled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's been, that's been like his most exciting. Like this is what's going to get your attention. When you talk about popping off the screen, it's, Oh, Akinola's in again. Like he's just been sprung again. Like this is crazy. He's, he keeps getting in on goal. So do you give him big... any credit for for like for timing his runs well or get you know getting his shoulder inside a center back and you know winning position that sort of thing? I'm I'm going to be skeptical on it. I mean, there's an element to it that that yes, that's going to be good, but I I think a lot of it is going to sort of fade out as as we leave this sort of preseason where I don't even know to the extent teams got a preseason in before this uh, before they had to just start playing games, um, so I'm I'm very curious because usually you look at expected goals to see how things are gonna to see how uh, sustainable something is, and Akinola's ex- expected goals are extremely high, but you know there's the sample size caveat. But I, I also think that the situations he was getting into that were his highest like xG situations are are not necessarily going to be sustainable once once they get into more regular uh, schedules. Mm. Okay. that's my big concern he there were there were other situations where he's moving well off the ball and like uh creating space for for a ball to come across him for a, a nice tap in there's situations where he does time runs really well and altador uh you know s- s- like uh slides it in but for the most part i think we're gonna see i you know i don't think we're gonna see akinola as somebody who's gonna be taking over mls in the scoring department okay okay well Let's let's get to his link up play too, because I think that's important, and that's where it's m- more of like the bull in the china shop. Uh, he's willing to. He's going to come back into the midfield and play. A lot of times, even that isn't super subtle. Like he'll just sort of come flying into your picture from from the forward position, uh, and he re- sort of receives the ball while he's still running backward. It kind of bubbles up on him. He'll probably connect a pass, but he's not going to be this like in rhythm connecting player which for me is what we're looking the specific trait we're looking for in our national team setup. Hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was no more clear than when Josie Altador finally played in the tournament in the, I think the third game of the group stage, uh, Altador comes on and with his very first touch, like takes a ball off the short hop while he's posting somebody up, like 
cushions it perfectly while he pushes off the defender to create separation, pivots with one step, and slides in a ball for Akinola, who then gets dragged perfectly down. Perfectly in stride. Yeah, I mean, like, you just see that. on, And that's that was Josie Alcador's first competitive soccer action since the March shutdown. Uh, and you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Josie Alcador probably still our striker. There's levels to this. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, that's that's sort of my my Akinola take uh, as of as of July 2020. Great. I think I think he has a lot more in common with Zardes than he does with Altador at the moment. One 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 last. I know I said last thing, but one last thing about Akinola is uh, there are worse types of players to be than than like a Giazzi Zardes type player when you have Putzuelo and Josie Altador feeding you passes. So um, it's it's certainly not like there's a cap on what Akinola can do. He could have a ton of success uh finishing off chances from these guys mm-hmm. yeah that's anyway that's that's my Akinola scout uh, well I, w- I want to say I like I like the way he uh I like the way he finishes and I like the way he can which I know that's just gobbledygook mystical gobbledygook but <laughs> he did have that absolute banger though yeah he had the banger if he gets the ball on his right foot he's gonna put it he's gonna test the keeper if he gets the ball on his left foot, he's gonna he's gonna pass it to the keeper. <laughs> pass That's, it to the keeper. That that also checks out. Yeah, but um, but his ability to win a physical battle with the center back, I think, is it's something that Sargent kind of misses a little bit in the Bundesliga. Obviously, we're talking about different levels and totally different circumstances, but you do get the sense when Akinola's chasing down a ball that a center back is also chasing down. There's a decent chance Akinola is going to end up with it and get a shot off. And I know that's that's only a small sliver of what it is to be a soccer player, but it is it, do, it is something that matters. That's just my little two cents on Akinola. I'm right. I'm right there with you on that. He's he is. Uh, I mean, that goalie scored where he just overpowered uh, Montreal's center back to score his third of the game. Yeah, it was that, intense. Yeah, pop pops off the screen a little bit. Okay, let's do Abobase and Morris. Okay, that's great because Abobase is actually like a great contrast to Akinola where I think he is actually uh, incredibly tidy. I hadn't watched a ton of Abobase. I think I don't know if it's just because I feel like he's uh, buried on the wing out in Portland last year or if Portland just doesn't get me too excited to watch. Uh, but he was re- playing as the target striker in this tournament. He's really clean on the ball. Hmm. Uh, and... It's it, it was a complete contrast. Like he has some of that outdoor like efficiency in his mechanical, like uh, collecting a ball and then moving it to the next place. Um, he's usually operating in pockets rather than like with a guy right on his hip. But there there are definitely there's definitely evidence that he can play with a guy on his hip uh, and still be that clean with it. So uh, I think he he's much more like a Jesus Ferreira type, which for me is a valuable piece. Could be could be a valuable depth option. Uh, for the national team, if we're trying to play that way, outdoors always hurt, and we're looking for guys who can facilitate uh, for the sort of more elite attackers. Okay, he's also scored some goals, right? Yeah, he's gotten on the end of a couple of crosses, so uh, a decent header, and then um, one time where he did just kind of have a guy posted up on a, a ball that came across, and he's there to clip it in. Uh, his his movement, I I am not super impressed with his movement in the eighteen. Uh, like when the ball goes out wide, um, I'm more impressed with his movement uh, checking back to balls in the buildup. Like I think he's actually really sharp about losing guys, uh, like with with a quick sharp burst to get into a space. 
Uh, he doesn't just sort of turn and run back to the ball the way sort of Akinola had a tendency to do. Um, again, he doesn't post guys up necessarily the way Josie does, uh, but he does kind of operate more like a Ferreira to get into a pocket, collect, and really cleanly move it along. Hmm. He doesn't. He's not going to dominate players the way Josie Altador does. Not many. Not many do. <laughs> right. That's why Altador is, you know, sort of remains our most complete forward option. So Iboba says somewhere in the depth chart, but like third or fourth or fifth. Yeah, it it goes back to I I wish we would have seen more that kind of player more through 2019, and Iboba would have been one to to get more of an extended run out in the in the forward role rather than playing that one one off. Uh, he played one game on the wing in January camp. Hmm. Well, uh, he's got a big supporter in Matt Doyle. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, since we talked about stats for some of the other guys, Bobusay is also basically bang on Giazzi Zardes's goal creation numbers per ninety. So it's not like he's, uh, you know, incapable of scoring. I know Zardes tends to get defended by just being like, "Well, who else is scoring?" Uh, but Bobusay is, I think, right on Zardes's numbers per ninety from two thousand nineteen. Even given the fact that Bobusay played played a lot of wing too. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. uh, so again, like there's. There are other contenders. It didn't. It's not like it, Zardes is just the only one who we could have, we could have tried. Okay, let's get to the the. I think the last player we're going to talk about today, Jordan Morris. You did so, the scouting report on him. Yeah, I took him on because uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out if he's still going to have a uh, a play. I mean, I shouldn't say a lot of people are trying to think that. A lot of people are certain that he should still have a place, probably in the starting eleven. Uh, even as we were talking about sort of the new system we think we're going to play. And and so I just wanted to see how he looks uh, and how he might fit in. So I wanted to take a closer look at him. There are also people sort of calling for maybe moving him to the nine uh, to play as the striker to get him and Gio Reyna on the field at the same time. Um, mm. Who's calling so, for that? <laughs> there, I think there's a, there's a contingent. Uh, I, I don't see it from from what I saw of him in this game. There there was also someone who brought to my attention that he played the nine a little bit for Seattle last year over the summer. Uh, like he's just he doesn't have the usage rate as a nine that I think we're gonna that our our situation that our setup would dictate. Uh, so I think if he's gonna play, it'd be on the wing. Uh, something we didn't talk about last last time out is if you want to have Morris and you want to keep him on the wing. You could do that on the right side. He could play that right winger, and you could have Serginho Dest come up and attack sort of inside, so he could become like uh, a 10 and a, and a fullback instead of a overlapping fullback. Mm, I love it. I bet Greg Berhalter loves that idea too. I think so too. It seems It'd be like a nice little fun kind of wrinkle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not crazy. And again, we you have to rotate between games anyway. We're going to play a ton of games in, in a short time span. Uh, you gotta, you're going to have to deal with injuries. So it's not like it's... It's always going to be the same eleven. So if 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 you are looking for ways to spell guys or, or you need uh, you know rotations, that's certainly a rotation that would be uh, pretty consistent, I think, with people's skill sets. Yeah. So I mean, you could always bring him on as a late game sub to get a goal too. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and I, and I still don't think it's out of the realm of possibility whatsoever that he's Burhalter's Burhalter thinks of him as the starter. Mm. Uh, even in place of Gio Reyna. And uh, my, my actual gut theory is that he's going to ease Reyna in. Like he has the luxury to do that with Dest. We had to get him in right away because there was that uh, 
eligibility question. <laughs> but with with Rain, I think he'd be more than happy to say what is actually the best way to ease integrate this player, and it might be bringing him in for 20 minutes here, and then you know that kind of a uh, mapped out plan, and that sort of would also help manage potentially egos because Jordan Morris could very easily say, what have I done to get replaced? Yeah. All right. Do we, should, yeah. I, should I talk about how he plays a little bit? Sure, please. I'll just, I'll just kind of reiterate. He's, he's also a bit bull in China shopish. And I don't think that's too much of a surprise. Uh, he's, he's going to be fine collecting the ball in the wing. But what I'd say about his first touch is that he basically has to, he's, he's almost always like fully concentrating on collecting the ball with his first touch and it's rarely used to like deceive someone or to beat someone straight away. Does that make sense? Yep. He's going to collect it and then he's going to do something. Yep. He's not like already doing something while he's collecting the ball. Uh, but where he's actually looks much more like a finesse player is once he's moving, like when he's running full speed, he's still capable of hitting like some nice combination passes with a Rui Diaz or with a Nico Lodero where it's, all like graceful and fluid and in stride uh, and clean. And and I think that's kind of a unique skill set to have where he's not as great from a standstill, but once he's moving, he's just, he's just in his element. Yeah. Cause he can, he's to the point with his game now where he can definitely take it to the byline on the left wing and pull it back across with his left foot. Effectively. Yeah. Fizz is a low ball across. I, I really like that, uh, that skill set that he's got. Um, and he just he just has some really good ideas of where to I think try to hit that ball. So uh, he's got some good setup passes uh, to his name in this tournament, um, aside from just his assist. So uh, it, you know in this tournament he has not done certainly hasn't done anything to hurt his cause if if he was already in good standing with Berhalter for like a starting eleven spot. Okay. Um, just, we... just since just since we talked about all the other guys' numbers uh, a little bit, Jordan Morris in his absolute like career year career year last year did pretty significantly outperform his expected goals. So I think he is hitting for like 0.77 per 90, which is pretty absurd. Uh, hmm. And I think he was actually only expected to hit like 0.55. So it's it was a he he was scoring and assisting at what you'd call an unsustainable rate. Like he's going to regress a little bit this year that hasn't happened through MLS's back. So we'll see if that's MLS's back inflation or if, or if he's really just getting better and better. Who knows, but he did not look good to me in the game against LAFC could have just been an off night and it's not like he was a total disaster, but pretty rough outing for him uh, to end the, end his tournament run. Just when, you know, just when I was feeling the heat from the public on not giving him his due, he comes out and kind of lays an egg. So that's what happens when you play against future national team coach Bob Bradley. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, the thing is, it was a wide open game, too. Uh, you know, LAFC was throwing everybody forward and Seattle was throwing everybody forward. And like they just Morris just couldn't ever really break anything down. So, anything else to say about that? I think we've I think we've gone on for a long time. <laughs> we've we've gone in depth. That was an in depth episode on some players. Yeah, let's overthink some things. To, let me do a quick two L TLDR on all of these players. Aaron Long, 
Do you mind if I do that just to close this out? No, no, that's great. Aaron Long, still, you know, still a national team center back, provides a decent floor, but not certainly not an insurmountable one. James Sands, probably a defensive midfielder, not a center back. Mark McKenzie, lots of potential. Let's watch him closely. Miles Robinson, similar to Aaron Long. I don't know what the calculus is for him to surpass an Aaron Long. Justin Glad. Let's put him on the back burner for a while at center back. Uh, Christian rolled on. No comment. <laughs> Jackson Ewell. Uh, spreadsheet merchant. Christian <laughs> Spreadsheet Roldan. merchant. There you go. Jackson Ewell, he he fits Berhalter's profile for the number six in the current system probably better than anybody else. Because, as you said, Greg, he, 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 he makes surprising passes. Against MLS teams. If he, if he can't do it at the national team, we'll find out quick. Yeah, okay. Frankie Amaya, uh, not a not a Yule type six. Not really. Uh, so maybe he's an eight, but it, it'll be a while before we see him with the national team, I would think. Brendan Aronson, cool it, everybody. Uh, <laughs> just, enjoy, just, enjoy what you're, just enjoy what he's doing. It doesn't have to lead to a $9 million fee. Sam Vines, athletic, but probably not quite there yet. Chase Gasper, I'd say a good solid left backup left back for the national team for right now. Um, Ao Akinola, bull in a china shop was feasting on minnows in uh, MLS's back. Jeremy Abobase, you want to take that one real quick? Uh, I think he's another another option if we're going to start playing the uh, the nine as a false more of a false nine. I think he fits really well. Okay. And Jordan Morris could very well be the starter at right wing. Uh, at minimum, a solid sub off the bench or a rotation player for the national team. Let's get the f out of here. <laughs> All right, pals. Thanks, Craig. Really appreciate it. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see ya.